So guys, Christmas is here. A time full of stress, long lines at the retail stores, anxiety, endless events, credit card debt for some, family gatherings, and for those of us in this room, Jesus. Right? Christmas, there you go, yeah, I like that. First, second service loves Jesus a little bit more, apparently, because the first service didn't clap. But we, we're here, right, at church to celebrate, and we've been doing it for weeks now, and we will continue to do it next Sunday up until the culmination of the day that our Savior was born. And it's a time of remembrance. It's a time of celebration, remembering who Jesus is and how he came into the world, utterly relatable. And also looking forward to the fact that that baby that was born on Christmas grew up, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave, and will come again. But interestingly enough, Christmas becomes something comprised of completely different thoughts than joy and celebration and happiness and reflection. It becomes a time of anxiety, stress, and a desire for New Year's. And if you feel like that, I'm with you. And if you don't, God bless you. You're skating through somehow without the stress of Christmas. But despite everything, despite everything with Christmas, it holds a wonderful, very unique and special place in all of our hearts. Let's put it this way. If you were to come here on the first Sunday of Advent and we didn't decorate this place with trees and lights, you'd leave and you'd go somewhere else because you got to celebrate Christmas. You got to put the lights up. You got to do the whole thing, right? Because there's so many memories of attached to Christmas, so much nostalgia, something so beautiful that makes it the chief among all holidays. But behind all the glitz and the glam, behind all the wrapping paper and apple cider, sits at the heart of Christmas a baby. A baby born some 2,000 years ago in a dark cave barn that smelled horrible with animals everywhere and was placed in not very nice blanket and put in a feeding trough and born to very inexperienced young parents who most likely were freaking out that their firstborn baby is now in a barn and with food all over and who knows what else was over um, this baby, right? This is Christmas and we, we glamorize it, but this is what it's about, this baby that came. And this baby wasn't just any baby. He's very special, we know. He had a purpose. He was actually God in the flesh. And he grew up. And this morning, we're going to look at, in John chapter 12, the last recorded message in the public ministry of this grown-up baby, Jesus. His last message before the Lord's Supper that he does before his disciples when he washes their feet, before the beatings, before the imprisonment, Before the mocking, before the crucifixion, before the resurrection, Jesus gives one last message to us before the tumultuous events begin. So we're going to pick up and look at that, and we're going to see what Jesus, this grown-up baby, is looking at us and saying and how this relates to Christmas. So let's look at John chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We're going to start in verse 37, but before we jump there, I want to give you a little context of what's happened. So Right before this, Jesus has come into Jerusalem, and you can probably picture this from the childhood plays where Jesus comes in on a donkey, and they're waving the palm fronds, and he's coming in. 
And as he comes in, he gives this message. He gives this little dialogue or discussion. And he says, listen, here's how I'm going to die. And I'm not going to just die, but when I die, I'm then going to rise. He predicts his death and his resurrection. And during this discussion that he has on his way in, once he triumphantly enters into Jerusalem, it says that a voice comes down from heaven. Here's what the voice says. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. This is in reference to the name of Jesus. That this name has been glorified and it will be glorified again. And some people said that when this voice came from heaven, it sounded like thunder. And some people said it was an angel. And here's what Jesus says. This is in verse 30 of John 12. It says, A voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him. We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. So Jesus stands before the crowd and they're asking, you know, how can, how can the Son of Man die? He's supposed to live forever. And Jesus just goes this analogy of light. And he says, the light is here for a little bit longer. Walk in the light, not in darkness, because in darkness you don't know where you're going. And be the light, be in the light, so you can become sons of light. And then we pick up in verse 36, 37, and here's what happens. It says in verse 36, Jesus, after he said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. He does this time and time again. Sometimes he's giving a message, then after he leaves and he goes and hides, and maybe he's tired, he just got to get away from the crowds a little bit. Maybe he wants to go with his boys, the disciples, and just have bro time. Whatever it is, but in this moment... Jesus, he gives this message, he predicts his death, he predicts his resurrection, and he talks about the fact that light has come, walk in the light, don't walk in darkness. And then he leaves. And John doesn't tell us where he goes. He just says he hid himself and he departed. And keep that in mind that Jesus is hidden, we don't know where he is, because I think that's important. So right after that, John picks up and he tells us this in verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. This is in reference to the Jews, that though Jesus had done so many signs, he had been doing three years of public ministry. He raised a guy from the dead. He made blind people see. He made lame people walk. He took some fish and a, and a piece of, few pieces of bread, and he fed 5,000 people. He's done some incredible things. And though he's done all these signs, all these miracles, they don't believe him. They're not convinced. And we know that's true because a few days from now, in the story, they will kill him. And I think this is really important for us to kind of take a step back and say, this is really shocking. Because for us, we associate Christianity with Gentiles, non-Jews, right? So if someone becomes a Christian, they begin to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they're a Gentile, a non-Jew, it's not striking. It's, that's normal, Right? But if a Jew becomes a Christian now, that's really striking to us. But it wasn't like that then. Jesus, as you know, is Jewish, right? The, his disciples are Jewish. 
He's in Jerusalem. He is the, the messianic fulfillment of the prophecies that a Messiah would come. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament, not Greek mythology, not Roman, not Egyptian, though Paul will say that he's the fulfillment of all desires of our longings, longings of our heart, religiously, spiritually. But Jesus is Jewish. God's people are Jewish. You would expect for them to welcome him. You would expect for them to, this is Christ, this is the Messiah, this is the Son of God come to us to rescue, and they don't. They're unconvinced. Despite what he can do, despite what he says, despite the way that he cites Old Testament scripture and says, I'm the prophecy, I'm the fulfillment, I'm all these things, despite making blind people see and even raising a guy from the dead, they don't believe him. They're unconvinced. And John goes on, now he quotes this strange passage from Isaiah. Verse 38, and he says, so these unconvinced people, so that the word was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. This is why they were unconvinced, so that this prophecy might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now we have to be honest here for a second. This is really problematic. Maybe you were doing your personal worship this week. Possibly this struck you. Maybe you ran by it. It's easy for us to do that. But let me read that again. I want you to really think about what's being said. These Jews who should have believed in Jesus, he's the fulfillment of everything they've been waiting for. They reject him. They're unconvinced despite what he does. And it says that it was to fulfill this prophecy in Isaiah that says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah and John is picking up on this. He pins belief and unbelief to the arm of the Lord, essentially to say belief and unbelief are all a part of God's activity in the world. Belief and unbelief are not separate from his purposes, the things that he dictates and ordains. God is in belief and unbelief. And this is a little uncomfortable, right? If you're reading this and you're really processing it because it's like, wait, wait a second. This doesn't really work with like the Christmas Jesus who came and he loves us. You're telling me that God is in belief and unbelief because here it says he hardened their heart and he blinded their eyes. He's not letting them believe what's going on here. It's almost like you're sitting there and you're thinking, this kind of makes God seem like some evil tyrant playing some weird game of duck, duck, goose, right? It's like hardened, hardened belief, hardened hardened belief is that what's being said is it that kind of picture this evil tyrant god that's just hardening people's hearts and blinding their eyes is this why isaiah and john picks this up i don't think that's that's the case what we see all throughout scripture time and time again um, is one that god is sovereign he's in control of all things belief and unbelief but yet in a mysterious, in a way that we can never fully, fully fathom, but we can understand, 
human will and human choice is a part of life. Choice, decisions, our human will is a part of the human experience, is a part of the human soul. We choose things, but yet God is not outside of them. He is in them, and his arm and his hand oftentimes is right there in it, and we see it later. Romans 1 kind of clarifies for us this and kind of solves this issue a little bit, as does other parts of Scripture. Romans 1 essentially says this. God gave us over to our selfish and sinful desires. Essentially to say, and Romans 3 clarifies this, that we are extremely messed up sinful people and we always choose everything but God. Romans 3 actually says, none of us are good, no, not one. None of us choose God. We don't choose God. We don't want his, the things that he wants. We're all like Adam and Eve. We give, we're given a temptation, an opportunity to kind of be God for ourselves or figure out what we want for life and find wisdom and safety and security and purpose the way that we want, and we take it and we snatch it. And God gave us over to that. Human will is involved in this at the same time. And what is being said here in Isaiah, as the rest of Scripture, is that God is in unbelief. He's in every process of human history and life. And yet our will is involved as well, and we have responsibility and we have guilt because of our decision, our inevitable decision, to not choose God. Despite the signs and the miracles and the evidence, we don't really want him. And we don't choose him. And I think this is important for us to wrestle through. And I think John puts this here for a reason. And we're going to see in, in a moment why. But what happens in Christianity and for all of us is we begin to make this distinction of clean and unclean, right? That we are clean, which is true. Jesus has washed us and forgiven us of our sins. And we are clean before the eyes of God. But are we really clean in and of ourselves? Are we really clean? And we make a distinction between clean and unclean and good and bad people. And essentially, we begin to think that we're good people. We make the right decisions. We do the good things. We wake up Sunday morning and we come to church. We try to get into a communion group. We read our Bible and do personal worship and we pray. I mean, we are good people and we have made good decisions. Maybe we're a little bit smarter, a little bit morally superior than the rest of those pagans out there. We kind of begin to think that a little bit, right? And this word that we read from every Sunday, this Bible that we herald as absolute truth, makes one thing abundantly clear time and time and time and time again. None of us are good. Like even a little bit. We're all really bad. <laughs> and the reason I say this is because it's important for us to really, really realize that. Because it changes things. When we really realize that our faith and our belief is not founded upon the rock of our own construction, but rather we have been planted on the rock, the eternal rock that is Jesus. We've been planted, not founded. We haven't created something. We haven't created belief. We haven't made the right decisions. And we're just a little bit morally better off than the rest of those that reject. No, no. We've been snatched from our wandering darkness and we've been put into the light. But the hand of God has come in and removed this hazy, confused, dark veil that's over our eyes and given us vision, giving us sight, understanding who the Lord is. That despite the choices that we make, God's not thwarted by those. Despite our desire for unbelief, 
despite the fact that we will blind ourselves and we will, our hearts will be hardened and we will choose everything but God, God is not removed from that. Despite our choices, God can still come in and intervene and rescue and bring light to darkness. And I don't think this is a new concept for us. You know, I think that we realize that the church is a bunch of diverse people, all religion, all, all races, all places on the earth. We are a world religion. And that we're all messed up. We're all sinners. We acknowledge that. We sit here. We say we're sinners because you have to say you're a sinner to really believe that Jesus has forgiven you of sin. So we acknowledge that. And I think at real, it's not a new concept for us. I think that this church has an incredible heart. And if you've been here any time, you know that. There is a heart and there is a desire here to see our families and our neighborhoods and our city and this world transformed with the gospel. There is a, a contagious heart in this church for that end. But I think that this passage makes us stop for a second and really look at ourselves and really ask, how do we view ourselves truly? I want to do a little game with you. It's going to be really fun. I want you in your mind, and don't feel weird about this, everyone can do it, okay? It's not judgmental, everyone can do this. I want you to, in your mind, imagine a person or persons that make you uncomfortable, that are kind of hard to love, okay? Whether it's their behavior, their lifestyle, the decisions they make, their speech, their political views, whatever it may be, okay? Their vices, their attitude. I want you to picture person or persons, not necessarily by name. And I want you to imagine them, make you uncomfortable, hard to love. Now, I want you to imagine flooding this church with just those people. Just like, boom, we blow out these doors and it's just all those people. Are you full of joy? And I don't mean conceptually, okay? I don't mean like, yes, the sinners are in here. I mean, are you truly full of joy? In your heart, truly full of joy that these people are here and they're just as broken as you and just as messed up as you and they get to hear the grace of God and be transformed by the gospel or have the opportunity to hear that? Are you full of joy? Or are you a little bit rattled that maybe the social structure of this church may get convoluted? Or are you a little bit more concerned about the transformation of their behavior and their lifestyle than actually the transformation of their heart? Which those two things aren't mutually exclusive, but which one comes first? Are you concerned that maybe their vices and maybe their lifestyles might corrupt the rest of us? And would you maybe in time look for a new church that feels a bit more like home? And I say this because I think we all have to wrestle with this. Do we associate ourselves as just as dirty, just as messed up, just as broken as those people we just imagined? Do we see ourselves that way? Just as in need of God's grace and his transformation. Imagine if this, Tom came up here at the benediction and he said, guys, next Sunday is public exposure day, which does not mean you're going to come in and take your clothes off. What it means is you're going to come in and you're going to sit down and Tom's going to call you up by one by one. You're going to come up here under these lights and you're going to be really nervous because they're like right on you. and You can't really see expressions very well. And you're going to have to stand up here and you're going to have to tell every sin you've ever committed. 
the ones you're currently committing, and the ones you probably plan on committing soon. Okay? How many of you would come? You know, I was thinking, like, maybe I could call in sick that day, or I could, I'll, I'm out of town, sorry, I can't be here. I think people would come. Here's who I think would come. The people you imagine in your mind. You know why? Because they don't have anything to hide. Most of the time, their sin is pretty evident. It's visible. People know about it. People see it. And they'd come up here, and they'd stand here, and they'd say, you know what? I am a mess. I keep making bad decisions. I have some really hard struggles that I'm trying to get over, but the grace of God has transformed me, and it's, it's a process. Here's what I've done. Here's what I'm doing. Uh, and hopefully, by God's grace, I'll move past this. The vo- those of us that would call in sick would be the ones that we like to make everyone think that we have it together, that we're good, everything's okay. Sanctification, I'm at like 9 out of 10. I'm almost like Jesus level, you know. I think the reason that John quotes Isaiah here is because he wants us to identify as the church, as the people of God, that we are all just a league of guilty people. It is imperative that we understand that. We are no better than anyone else. Despite whether we're in the light now or whether they're in the darkness, we are all guilty and messed up. And he continues this, and he's going to prepare you for what Jesus says as his last appeal of his public ministry. And he gives this interesting note in 41 and 42. And 43, he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him. So there were some people that believed in what Jesus was saying. They saw the signs, they saw the miracles, and they believed. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Can you associate yourself with that? Can you relate to that? I know I can. It's letting us know that we are all in and of ourselves naturally hardened and blinded and we love how people think of us way more than what God thinks of us. If we really all answer honestly, we really care more about the glory and the acclaim of others than the glory and the acclaim of God. And yet we're going to see these are the people, messed up, broken, wayward, love people more than God, that Jesus was born on Christmas to come save. And these are the people that he's talking to. Verse 44 says this, And Jesus cried out and said, so we know this is important. He cried out, he yelled, he screamed. What he's about to say is really, really important. And remember I told you before, we have no idea where Jesus is, right? We don't know who he's talking to here. And this is unique because a lot of times in the Gospels, when Jesus is going throughout his public ministry, we know where he is. He's standing by the lake and there's a crowd that comes around him because he's at Galilee. Or he's at the Pharisees' house and he's sitting around the table and he's eating and he's talking to the Pharisees. Or he's on the Sermon on the Mount, as we just studied a few weeks back, and all this crowd gathers around. He walks up the mountain and he sits down. We know where he is. We can picture it. We know who he's talking to. Here we have no idea. We don't know where he is and we don't know who he's talking to. And I think that's on purpose. I think 
John does not tell us where Jesus is or who he's talking to because he wants us to realize he's talking to everyone. He doesn't want to allow us the opportunity to say, oh, this is for the Pharisees, those self-righteous religious people. Oh, or this is for the Gentiles, those really pagan, polytheistic people. Or this is for the disciples. This is for the really spiritual ones. No, no, this is for everyone. What he's about to say is for everyone, and we're not even given the audience to kind of get away from that. Here's what Jesus says. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. So he starts out his message and he says, listen, if you believe me, if you see me, if you listen to me, it's not, I'm not just some random guy. I'm not just some good guy who was born in a manger and we call it Christmas, and I was raised up, and I was pretty good, and I had some really cool magic tricks like David Blaine, and people believed it, and I had some cool messages. I'm, I'm just like loving. I'm not just a guy. I am God. If you believe in me, you need to understand that I am God. We are one. He emphasizes his divinity and his union with the Father here. If you see Jesus, you see God. They're one and the same. So what he's about to say is pretty important because it's absolutely true. He continues and he tells us why he's come, why he's born on Christmas. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. The I have come is, is the perfect tense, which denotes it's a, it's a forthcoming, it's a remaining. It's not just a he's come at one point in history and that's it. It's that he's come as light and it is continuing. He is still light. Jesus has come as light and he's come as light to do something so whoever believes in him may not remain in darkness, which lets us know what we just said. What's our natural state? Darkness. Who are we naturally? We are dark. We are in darkness. We are wandering. We don't know where we're going. And Jesus has come to rescue people that are living and wandering in darkness. That's why he's come. He's come for the purpose of salvation and illumination, to give vision, to give sight, to give freedom, to give forgiveness, to take away all the things that incorporate living in darkness and remaining in darkness and take those people and snatch them out and put them somewhere they don't belong, which is light. Make people dirty, unclean, messed up, love men and the way that they praise them more than God and drag them over to the light and say, this is now your new state. Don't go back there. Stay here. It's better. It's more safe. And then Jesus continues he says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, just thinks they're just words, not actually words of God. I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And this is kind of a little confusing because you're like, whoa, wait a second. Jesus just paired himself with God. He said, God and I are one. You see me, you see God, we're one and the same, divine. We know that God is judge, Right? Because he's loving and he's just. And we also know that in Matthew 25, Jesus says that he's going to one day stand before all the people gathered before him. He's going to separate the sheep over here. He's going to put the goats over here. And the sheep he's going to invite to come into heaven. And the goats he's going to kind of say, sorry, um, you rejected me. 
you have to go to hell. That sounds like a judge to me. Why is Jesus saying here that he doesn't judge for those that reject him? Jesus' last plea, his last appeal of public ministry is one that is tender and loving. Jesus is oftentimes frank. He's oftentimes very convicting. He's always honest. But his last plea is to an unknown audience, which is to us and anyone that hears the words. And he tenderly and lovingly says, listen, this is why I came. You're here celebrating Christmas. This is why I came as a baby in a dark, smelly cave and grew up to be a man that did signs and did miracles and spoke about the kingdom and spoke about God and eventually proved it with my life and my resurrection because I've come to take people out of darkness and put them in light. And I'm not coming to judge. You're all guilty and messed up. I'm coming to save. I haven't come to judge. I've come to save. And it, he clarifies in verse 48. He says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Which is to say, what I'm saying is true. It's not fake. It's not just from some guy who was really good and had some cool tricks. I am God in the flesh who came to relate to you and to love you and to share with you this message and hope of redemption and to take you who would always remain in darkness and always choose darkness and always wander around there on, by your own unless I came and dragged you out of it and put you in light. I've come to save and to illuminate you. And if you reject me, the love and the offer that I'm giving you you're rejecting my word, which is true. And that is judgment at the end. But he is coming in love. He is coming to love us. You see, Jesus is essentially saying, I'm not coming like was imagined that I'd ride into town in Jerusalem. I mean, I came on a donkey with people fanning me with palm fronds. A lot of people thought I was probably going to come in on like a white unicorn, which is what I imagine, and like a sword in one hand and a book of laws in the other hand and ride into town. I'm here. And if you don't believe me, I'm going to cut your head off. And then he's just riding through cutting heads off and people are lining up and following him and they're terrified, but they're loyal, you know, and they're just, that's like Jesus, the king, the judge, he's here. No. It's not who he is. He comes humbly in a dirty, dark, smelly manger and he raises up like a normal guy. He's just building chairs and he walks around and he, he loves on people and he heals people and he cares for people and he preaches about forgiveness and grace and he says, please believe me because my word is true and if you reject it, my word one day will judge. But I've come to save. I've come to take people out of darkness and bring them into light. Essentially, I think of it like this. I've come to take people that are living in a forest and they're kind of wandering in the forest. If you've ever been a forest at night, you know. You kind of feel safe in the dark, you know? It's like, no one can see me. And you're kind of hiding out there. And it's like, that's what we think when we're in darkness. It's safe. Everyone's out here too. It's like, wow, look at all the people in darkness. And Jesus has like a campfire in the middle. And you're kind of like, some people can see it. Some people are really far away from it. They can't even see it. And Jesus wanders out and he just grabs you some oftentimes kicking and screaming, and he just drags you, and he's already bloodied and everything, and he drags you, and he puts you before the fire, and he says, this is where you need to be. This is safe. This is truth. This is for, don't go back there. Stay here. 
I've put you somewhere you don't deserve to be, so stay here. You see, this time of Christmas um, can be a lot of things, a lot of distractions, a lot of stress, but that this is what Christmas is about. And sometimes we have to stop for a second and reflect and ponder what we're actually celebrating. God who has come into the world as a baby and he came for a purpose and his purpose was to save messed up people who would never choose him and would want to live in darkness their whole life and think everything's okay. And he's grabbed us and he's removed us from that and he's dragged us into the light and he says, stay here. Find forgiveness and freedom and vision here and worship me and love others at the same time. I want to close with reading a song, lyrics from a song uh, by John Mark McMillan. It's called Baby Son. And I think it paints the perfect picture of Christmas, of what we're celebrating, a God that has come into the world in a way we didn't imagine to save and to forgive people like us that don't deserve it, that are by nature hardened and blind. Here's what it says. We thought you'd come with a crown of gold, a string of pearls and a cashmere robe. We thought you'd clench an iron fist and rain like fire on the politics. But without a sword, no armored guard, but common born in mother's arms, the government now rests upon the shoulders of this baby son. Have you no room inside your heart? The in is full, the out is dark. Upon profane shines sacred sun, not ashamed to be one of us. Man, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you were not ashamed to be one of us. God, we thank you that you came in that dark cave, born into a situation and environment that we would never have imagined for the king of the universe the King of Kings, the Savior. And God, you grew up like us, but you are completely different from us. God, we thank you that you have come into this world for the purpose of bringing light to darkness. God, we know and we acknowledge, and sometimes it's hard, but we know that in and of ourselves, we are hardened and we are blind and we want darkness and we oftentimes crave darkness but you've come to illuminate. And you've taken us in this room and dragged us out of the dark forest and put us into the light. And God, we thank you for that. We know we didn't do anything. We know we're not a little bit morally superior or smarter than the rest. Lord, help us to acknowledge that. Help us to know and to see and to be amazed by your grace to invite others to participate in that because you have come lovingly and tenderly inviting all. You've come to save the world. Lord, help us to rest in that, to ponder that during this Christmas season, what we're really celebrating, which is unfathomable, unbelievable love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.